Okay, here we go. So we are beginning a series called Jesus is King. Jesus is King. And how many of you know Jesus is King? Some people know it and some people don't know it. Some people hear it and don't know what it means, think it's crazy. Jesus is King, but Jesus is King. And and so this is a series that we're going to deal with the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the birth of Christ, concerning uh, um, who he was and how he was to be born, where he was to be born. And there's prophecies about his life when he walked on the earth leading up to the cross. And so this is what we're going to look at leading up to December 22nd. And so we're, the, the, the Christmas message on, the, on December 22nd is going to culminate this series, uh, Jesus is King. And so... Jesus is king is a phrase that is something that as Christians we, we know and we say and it's common to us. And so it's not very often that that phrase, Jesus is king, that truth that Jesus is king gets out into the public realm. And if any of you pay attention to the news or you pay attention to hip-hop music uh, or just the, the world of music out there, you pay attention to social media at all, that phrase, Jesus is king, if you would Google the phrase, Jesus is king, right now, Google it. Jesus is king. And there's a name that's going to come up. What's the name? Kanye West. Kanye West. How crazy is that? Jesus is king, and Kanye West will come up on Google. That's unheard of. Until two months ago, three months ago. You would Google Jesus is King, you're going to, before Kanye West put out an album, Jesus is King, you Google Jesus is King, you're going to get scriptures. You're going to get messages about Jesus being King. You're going to get things centered around the Bible and scripture. But now, that's, that's what you're going to get because Kanye West came out with an album called Jesus is King. I just want, I just want to, just want to show you this. So in 2003, Kanye West was on, was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, and this is what the picture looked like. In 2006, he came out with an album called Yeezus, Y-E-E-Z-U-S, Yeezus, and it's, he calls himself um, Yeezy, and so it's a play on the, his name and the name Jesus, Yeezus, and on the, on the album, Yeezus, he had a song called I Am God. So, 03, they depict him in the passion scene with the crown of thorns on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. And in 06, he comes out with an album that is called Jesus, and he has a song on it called I Am, I Am God. And then now, Kanye is saying that he's not God, and he's saying, he's not saying that he's the Christ, but he's saying that Jesus is king. And my wife, my wife, um, my wife says I've been obsessed with him for a little while since it all came out because I'm trying to figure it out. How does a man who is being idolatrous and sacrilegious on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine and, and idolatrous and sacrilegious with his title, I am a God, singing that song and I read the lyrics. I don't advise you to read the lyrics. How does that happen? And so I'm like, is it real? What is going on in the man's life? But all I know is, I don't know exactly what's going on in his heart because only God knows his heart, but I know that he is declaring the truth of all truths. He's declaring the greatest truth that any human being can know and come to understand, which is that Jesus is king. 
So whatever the intentions are, if Kanye is sincerely a born-again Christian, his life will prove it out. But if he's not sincerely a born-again Christian, I still celebrate because he's putting the message out there that Jesus is king. At his concerts, he's saying, he says, I'm not here for your entertainment. I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I don't know what's going on with Kanye, but all I know is, is that he is declaring a truth that many throughout history have declared. He's, this, is, this is not new, right? Just because Kanye figured out 10 months ago that Jesus is king, this is not new. He's not the first to figure out that Jesus is king. We, many men and women throughout history since the resurrection of Jesus Christ have been declaring that Jesus is not just a man. He's not just a boy, baby boy born in a manger, but he, is, he became the resurrected savior of the world, which which allowed, which, which paved the way for him to become king of the world. Jesus is king. He was God eternal and he proved his kingship through the power of the resurrection. So the heart of God has always been that its creation would see him as king. The heart of God has always been that, that, that us as his creation would recognize that he is king and that we are not. But the history of creation, the history of creation shows that mankind has always gone in this pattern of, of rebelling against God, loving him, serving him, rebelling against God, serving false gods and false idols, and God judging mankind and turning man over to their own ways, and then God, and then them returning and repenting, and that's the history of mankind. And the heart of God has always been that we would see Christ as king and worship him as king. The history of humanity, however, is the pattern of God's creation rebelling against his authority and going their own way. And to me, that's the two pictures there. You're either going to submit to Jesus as king, the Lord of the universe, the creator of the world, the savior of the world, or you're going to go your own way. Those are the two options. Now, if we zoom in a little closer, so that's the picture since the Garden of Eden. Man has, has sought to go its own way to rebel against God's authority and his ways and to rebel against God as the king of their heart. But if you zoom a little closer into the scripture, into the Old Testament, you zoom into the, to the narrative, the story of the nation of Israel. And it is that same narrative. Why? Because the nation of Israel were human beings, were people. And so the nation of Israel, if you zoom in closer, you see that that's the pattern, that God would rescue them from oppression and bondage from the nations all around them. And then they would, they, they, they would serve the Lord. They would worship God, worship God as, as their one true king, the one true God. And then they would in, intermingle and intermarry with pagan nations who did not believe in the one true God. And then they would turn to idolatry and to worship false things, to worship themselves, to worship sex, to worship pleasure, to worship money and possessions. And then God would judge them, turn them over to their own way, and pagan nations would overtake them, and this pattern would continue. God would rescue them. They'd cry out for help. God would rescue them. And then they would worship God, and then they they would return to this pattern. This is the, the history of the nation of Israel. Now if we zoom in a little closer after that, Zoom in a little closer. There's a specific section of scripture in the book of First Samuel. Israel at this point had been delivered from Egyptian bondage. The Joshua generation, Joshua had led the second generation that was in the wilderness. The second generation, they led them into the promised land. And they were living in freedom. They were living in peace. They inherited the promised land. And Israel entered a season of peace 
during the season of the judges, where different judges were appointed by God to rule over the nation of Israel. And there was a season of peace, but that season of peace, as we said earlier, didn't last. Why? Because the nation of Israel, when they were in plenty, they would become prideful and they would return and they would turn to pagan ways. And so this is that continual pattern. And in this season, uh, there was a priest, there was a judge and a priest named Eli. And Eli was a, was, was, was a priest unto God that became corrupt because he allowed his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to be rebellious against God. And he allowed them to desecrate the temple of God. And he would not restrain them. So God brought judgment and ultimately brought judgment on Eli's life. And Eli, while he was sitting on a wall, fell down by God's judgment and broke his neck and died. And so at this point, the nation of Israel, who looked to Eli as their judge, as their priest, they come to the prophet Samuel, and we see this in 1 Samuel. They come to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, and they say, we need a king. We need a king that, will, that, that, that we can follow, that can rule over us. And let's look at what it says there in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel doesn't want to do it, because Samuel knows the heart of God, that, that God wants his people to have one king. And if for, it, if for it to be him, that God wants his people to love him above all else and to submit to his kingship. So Samuel is, goes to the Lord and says, Lord, I know this is not what you want. And, 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 I, and, and, and they're rejecting what you've set up. And God tells Samuel, Samuel, look, don't be upset. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. So give them what they want. And again, this is the pattern. When man goes their way and they rebel against God, God gives them over. It's a form of judgment. Says, this is the way you want to go? Well, you can go this way. And God tells Samuel, but I want you to warn them. You can let them go. You can let them have their king. I'll give them a king. But you need to warn them. Here's what's going to happen. What do kings do? Tell them what kings do. Kings will take your money. Kings are going to tax you. Kings are going to take a portion of your goods. Kings are going to take a a portion of your finances. Kings are going to take your sons and are going to send your sons off to war. Your sons are going to die in battle. This is what kings are going to do. They're going to rule over you. They are going to do what they want, take what they want, because they are kings. If this is what you want, then you can have it. And so God chooses, and ultimately it's a picture of people. The people chose Saul. The people chose Saul. And why did they choose Saul? Why was the spotlight on Saul? Well, the Bible says about Saul, the first king of Israel. Saul was the first king of Israel. The Bible says about Saul that Saul was handsome. So the Bible says about Saul that he was tall. He was head and shoulders taller than any man in Israel. I wonder how tall that was. Was this a bunch of short Israelites, male Israelites? Or was Samuel really tall? Whatever it was, he stood out. He was stately. He was from a, a, a wealthy family. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 9 that Saul was the son of a Benjamite. Of the tribe of Benjamin, it says that he was a man of wealth. His father was a man of wealth. So Saul was a stately man. He was a man of wealth. He was a man that had stature. He was a man that was good looking. And I can imagine when he walked into a room, people turned, their heads turned. 
Because power walked into the room. Influence walked into the room. And so the nation of Israel said, that's our man. God appointed him. Because only God appoints kings. But the heart of the nation went after Saul because of his appearance, because of what he looked like. And he was from the tribe of Benjamin. I want you to get this. The first king of Israel was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the prophecies in the Old Testament pointed to the reality that there, that the, the true king, the Messiah king that was to come was not going to come from the tribe of Benjamin. What tribe was the true king supposed to come from? The tribe of Judah. And so this should have been a clue to anyone who knew and understood the law of God. This should have been a clue that this man was not the right one. He was not of the right tribe. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. The king that was to come, that would be the king of all kings, the Messiah king was not to come from from the tribe of Benjamin. He was to be born of the tribe of Judah. And Genesis 49 shows us this. Genesis 49.10, the scepter Speaking of authority and power and kingship, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The promised Messiah was not to come from the tribe of Benjamin, but to come from the tribe of Judah. And so here's what I want to do here as we look at King Jesus, as we see that, that Jesus is king and the story of history is whether or not you and I and, and everyone else, whether we will acknowledge it or not. That's the story of history. Will you acknowledge that Jesus is king? Will you be like Kanye and acknowledge that Jesus is king? And that's the story of the history of humanity and the history of the nation of Israel. And there's prophecy after prophecy that point to the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And, and, it, and it was told in prophecy that the promised Messiah had to be, there was, there was, there was three specific things. He had to be of the tribe of Judah, and we see this in, in Genesis 49. But also he had to be of the seed of Abraham, the line of Abraham, and of the line of David. And so what we want to do here is we're going to kind of unpack those. We're going to read these prophecies and we're going to see how Jesus is the promised king, the promised Messiah. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. This is where it starts. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he made a promise to Abraham. Listen to the promise. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. And I and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring I will give this land. The promise was going to be to his offspring. Through his offspring would all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul references this picture in Genesis 12 in Galatians 3.16. Listen, listen to this, what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus was to come from the seed of Abraham, and we see that in history, that he was, uh, he was down the line, down the lineage of Abraham, and it's confirmed in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. As you read through the genealogies there in Matthew, it starts out like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus was the son of Abraham. Then this is the first line of fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus had to fulfill. 
if, the, if he was going to be the Messiah, he had to come from the line of Abraham, be the seed of Abraham. The Old Testament says the Messiah must be a, the descendant of Abraham, and the New Testament confirms that Jesus was. The Old Testament also says that the Messiah King was to be from the royal line of David. Listen to this prophecy written 700 years. Listen, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Listen to this prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. 700 years from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's an eternal kingdom. It's speaking about an eternal kingdom through the line of David. The David's kingdom was not an eternal kingdom. It ended one day after Solomon came, after Solomon became the next king, after David, the, 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 the nation was split. And so David's kingdom was not eternal. But it's pointing to an eternal king that would, fall, that would be born in the royal line of David, the eternal king, Jesus. Second Samuel, excuse me, let's go to Jeremiah 33. Let's go to Jeremiah 33. This is written five to six hundred years before the birth of Christ. Jeremiah 33 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, and in, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And this is a picture of Jesus becoming our righteousness for us, that he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He is, the, he is the way for us to become made right before the Lord. But you see the connection 600 years before the birth of Christ. You see a call that the Messiah was going to come from Judah, from David, from the royal line. And then you see again in Matthew that Jesus Christ is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you remember whenever the angel came to Mary? In Luke chapter 1, another confirmation of Jesus fulfilling these, these Old Testament prophecies. Listen to this, Luke 1. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. In his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. An eternal kingdom for an eternal king. Jesus himself testified that he was king. Do you remember whenever he was interviewed by Pilate leading up to his death? Pilate comes to Jesus and he says, everyone's saying that you're a king. And he says, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Listen to what Jesus says. He declares that he's a king. And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have, de- have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. 
but my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I've come into the world. It was for that very purpose that he was born. To be the king, not only of the Jews, but the king of the whole world. For this purpose I was born to be the king. And because I am the true eternal king, that I will bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If you are of the truth, if you, be, if you say that you believe in ultimate truth, you have to believe in, in the personification of ultimate truth, which is Jesus as king. If you say you believe in God, you have to believe in Jesus. If you say if you believe there is a God, Jesus is the perfect representation of who God is. And Pilate answered, what is truth? Jesus did not simply come to be a baby in a manger. He didn't simply come just to be a good man. He didn't simply come just to point us to a good way to live this life. And that's what our culture will try to tell us. will try to tell you, just live by the principles of scripture because they're good principles. And they'll teach you to love your brother. And they'll teach you to walk in forgiveness. And they'll, they'll teach you, and if you believe in the prosperity gospel, they'll teach you how to get rich. Right? Jesus didn't come just to show us a way to live a happy, healthy, successful life. Jesus came because he was God eternal. He was God in the flesh. And he came to take our place on the cross. And, and he is reigning forever as an etern, as the eternal king. He was the God man. He was eternal God who put on flesh. He is the eternal king of kings. He came to testify to the truth because he is the truth. He came to embody truth for all to see. And Jesus was the long-promised Messiah King. And he fulfilled the prophecies. He was of the seed of Abraham. He was of the royal line of David. He came from the tribe of Judah. He fulfilled all the prophecies. And as we go through this series, we're going to look at other prophecies. It was prophesied exactly where he would be born, where the Messiah would be born. And Jesus was born there. You can't control the place of your birth, yet Jesus was born exactly where. He had the right lineage. He had the right heritage. He was born in the right place to be the the Messiah King. And he demonstrated it through his life, through the miracles that he did. He demonstrated it through his message that he preached like no one else would ever preach. And he did it by demonstrating his love for all of humanity, by dying on the cross for our sins. Then he proved that he was king by rising from the dead on the third day. Jesus is king And he proved it and he demonstrated it. Jesus was the long promised Messiah King who stands as a continual declaration of the goodness and love of the Father. Amen? So Jesus is King. So the question today is, is what, what what does that mean for me? What does that mean for my life? Jesus is King. Is it just simply as, as, um, saying that Jesus is King? Did, Did we put up that? That, that album of Kanye, he, he came up with a, a, an, an album. Is it simply just coming up with an album declaring that Jesus is king? Is that, is that what it's about? No, there's got to be some implications in our life that are greater than just putting out an album saying that he's king. There's three things I want us, as we, as we move forward with this message, as we see that Jesus is king, he fulfilled the prophecies. He was the chosen Messiah. And he proved he was king by rising from the dead. How does this reality of Jesus as king impact your life today? How does this reality that Jesus is king impact your life today? Because it has to have impact. 
It can't just be a declaration that you make that has no impact in your life. Here's the first thing that impacts your life. Jesus is the king of salvation. Jesus is the king of salvation. He declared it. Jesus has defeated Satan and the power of sin. Listen to Colossians chapter 1. He is, speaking of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Scripture says that no man has seen God. No man can see God and live. So if you want to know who Jesus is, the, the, the disciples, Philip, asked Jesus after he walked with them. He said, he said, Jesus, show us the Father. Tell us what the Father is like. And, and Jesus said, you've been with me this long. And you don't know what the Father is like and what he looks like. He says, and when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is what Colossians tells us, that Jesus is the image, the exact representation of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. That means not born, that he was born like, like, like in, uh, it, it, into sinful humanity, like, uh, that, like a sinful line, a, sin, a sinful bloodline, but it means first in order over all creation. He's the first in order over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. You know, scientists for centuries have been trying to figure out how the universe is held together. How is it actually working? How is it that the sun is perfectly positioned that we don't burn up here on earth? How is it that the moon's perfectly positioned away from the earth that we don't freeze? How is it that the stars are positioned as they are? How is it that the galaxies are held together? Well, Colossians tells us that in him all things hold together. He created all things and he holds them all together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. How do you have peace with God? Jesus is the king of salvation. That's how you have peace with God. How do you find forgiveness of your sins? How do you find peace in this life when there seems to be no peace in your heart? It's through Jesus. He's the king of salvation. Colossians 2 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What were the legal demands because of our sin? The legal demands because of our sin is that we would die in our sin and that we would be eternally separated from God forever. But through the cross of Christ, he took that legal declaration that we were guilty before God and and God the Father nailed that declaration to the cross of Christ and says that all of those who have placed their faith in him, that 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 record of debt is gone forever. Amen? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is the king of salvation. That's how it applies to your life. If you're going to be saved today, if you're going to be born again today, if you're going to have peace in this life now and peace in eternity with God It's going to be because you see Jesus as the king 
of salvation. As the only way to God. As the only way to the Father. His victory becomes our victory through faith. Through Christ and his defeat of death, hell and the grave, we have access to his victory through faith. Jesus is the king of salvation. For there is no other man, no other man, Acts 4 says, that there is no other name, excuse me, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is the king of salvation. He's the only way for salvation. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes unto the Father except through me. Jesus is the king of salvation. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, that's really confusing to me. What do you mean born again? Does that mean I got to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And, and Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, no, you have to be born again. Let me tell you what being born again looks like. He said, look at the wind. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You don't know where it's going. You don't know where it's coming from. He says, so it is. Jesus said, so it is with all those that are born of the spirit that are born again. That Jesus is the source of salvation. He is in control of salvation. He is the only one that can offer it. It comes through him. He is the king of salvation. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and he tells him, you must be born again. But then he says this, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Amen? Salvation is available through Christ. This is the greatest implication of the reality that Jesus is king. The reality of the resurrection makes this the greatest implication of Jesus being king, is that Jesus is the way for you to be born again. And those of you here today that are born again, you're here because you're here to worship Jesus as the king of your heart. You've placed him as the king of your heart. This is the truth that has transformed your life. But if you're here today and you've never done that, don't leave today without making that declaration that Jesus is the king of your heart because Jesus is the king of salvation. Amen? What's the second implication of the reality that Jesus is king? Secondly, Jesus is the king of my life. Jesus is the king of my life. If he is the king of salvation in your life and you surrender by faith to him as the king of your life, then Jesus is the king of your life. That means it's not my way. My life does not belong to me. Not my plans, but his. Not my will, but his. I prayed for somebody down here at the altar today, and I could hear in their heart cry for their prayer, they want to be used by God. They want their life to count for something for the kingdom, and and I could see in their heart and in their eyes, I could see in their eyes their heart and their passion. And it was a reflection of the reality that Jesus was the king of their life, was the king of their heart, and because he's the king of their heart, he is now the king of their life, the way that they live. If Jesus is the king of your heart, then he has to be the king of your life. When Jesus is the king of your life, you no longer live for yourself and your desires. You're now submitted to his authority. And this, again, is the struggle of humanity. Who are we going to submit to? Are we going to submit to the ways of the world? Or are we going to submit to the way that our heart, apart from Christ, wants to go to? Or are we going to submit to the kingship of Jesus Christ? He is the ultimate authority. He is the ultimate one in charge. This is a struggle. This is what we have battled from the beginning. Will we as created beings submit to our creator? Who are you submitting to today? 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is the king of your life. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you see that connection there? If you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he paid the price for your sins and you placed your faith in that price that he paid because he paid for you. Now you, you used, formerly you used to be enslaved to sin. You used to be enslaved to your own sinful desires, but now you are a slave to Christ. You are not your own. First Corinthians 6 says, do you not know? You're not your own. Somebody bought you. Christ bought you. You're not your own. Jesus is the king of your life. He gets to tell you what to do. Amen? He gets to tell us where to go, what to do, what to focus on. He gets to give us a fresh vision for our life. We are not our own. We belong to Christ. Jesus is the king of my life. Amen? Charles Spurgeon said this from his message, Bought with a Price. He said this in 1871. Remember that our Lord has paid all the price for us. There is no mortgage or lien upon us. We have therefore no right to give a portion of ourselves to Satan. Did you hear that? I read that this week. It's hitting a little bit more impactfully right now. Think about that. He's bought us. There's no mortgage or lien upon us. We have therefore no right to give a portion of ourselves to Satan. And he has bought us entirely from head to foot, every power, every passion, and every faculty, all our time, all our goods, all that we call our own, all that makes us, makes up ourselves in the largest sense of that term. We are altogether gods. Ah, it is very easy for people to say this, but how very, very difficult it is to feel it true and to act as such. I have no doubt there are many persons here who profess to be willing to give God all they have, who would not actually give him five shillings. Wow. Charles Spurgeon, 1871. We're not our own. All our power, all our goods, all our possession, all our energy, all that we own, all that we have belong to him because Jesus is the king of our heart through salvation. He becomes the king of our life. We are not our own. That is a great implication of the reality of Jesus being king. He is the king of my life. Remember the prophet Isaiah? I love the story of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the prophet comes. He has a vision of God. He sees God in his holiness seated on the throne high and lifted up. And he has the proper response. He says, woe is me for I'm, un- I'm undone. I have unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And an angel takes a coal, a flaming coal from the altar and brings it and places it on the tongue of Isaiah. And Isaiah just declared his tongue was unclean, meaning he was sinful. He was a sinful man. He spoke sinfully. And there's a picture of the cleansing that comes through Christ. And he was cleansed. And what was the response that Isaiah had after he was cleansed? He said, he said, here I am. The Lord said, who will go for me? Who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here I am, Lord, send me. Jesus is the king of my life. God, you are the king of my life. And that's what happens when we're cleansed as believers in Jesus Christ and and our sins are forgiven. The next response should be to bow before the Lord as king and say, Jesus, you are the king of my life. I will go where you tell me to go. 
I will say what you tell me to say. I will do what you tell me to do. My life is not my own because I've been bought with a price. Jesus is the king of my life. Been cleansed and forgiven. Now here's my life. Use me for your purposes. Use me for your purposes. What's the last implication of Jesus being king? Jesus is king both now and forever. He has ultimate authority. That's what I mean by that. He is the ultimate power. He has the ultimate authority. He is both king now and he reigns forever, both now and forever. Earthly rulers flex their power and authority. You ever seen somebody in charge and like to flex their authority? Like to prove to you that they're in charge? I tell you, if somebody has to prove that they're in charge, then they're not really in charge, right? If you've got to demonstrate to everybody you're in charge, you've lost your power. Jesus ain't got to prove that to nobody. Because he's God. He's the resurrected Savior. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's both king now and forever. You don't have to flex his power. He flexed it on the cross. He flexed it in the resurrection. He flexed it before time began at creation. And he'll flex it in the end in Revelation. Well, he'll say, time will be no more. And he'll send Satan to the abyss forever. And he'll establish an earthly kingdom. And he'll rule, and we will rule and reign with him as believers. When rulers and earthly kings have to flex their power, they have no authority. We know that all authority is given by God. All authority is given by God. That's what, the Roman, that's what the book of Romans says, Romans 13. All authority comes from God. Daniel chapter 2 says this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. He removes kings. He sets kings up. So if you're here today and you think you have authority and power, and Jesus is not the king of your life, you're not submitted to him, you don't have true power. You don't have true authority unless it's submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And all the kings out there, they fight for position and power and possession. I was preaching to the youth on Wednesday night. And I talked about how this is what the world does. The world, this is what the world does. The world fights for position. They fight for power and they fight for possessions. That's the race to the world. I want to be in the right position to have the right influence so I can have the right power, so I can have the right amount of money so I can get the right possessions that my heart desires. That's the race of the world. That's what the world is after. And Jesus came and he walked the earth. He was the creator of the universe who put on flesh. He was ultimate power in flesh. And what did he do? What did he come to do? He knelt down and washed the feet of sinful humanity. He could have came and made everyone do what he wanted them to do. But he came and he said, he said in the gospels, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He is king both now and forever, not because he flexes his authority and proves his power, but because it's who he is. And he demonstrates that power through a life of service. So when the world around us flexes and fights and jockeys for position, 
we can, un- we can know and understand right away that they, they, they don't know who Christ is. They're not submitted to the ultimate king who has true authority because they're not acting like him. You want to demonstrate true power and authority in your life, whether you're a husband, a father, a mom, your owner of a company, whatever you, if you're a manager, a true authority is demonstrated to how you serve, how you love. Jesus, who is the perfect representation of power, the the image of the invisible God came and served and looked at Pilate and declared that he was a king and he had a kingdom and he was truth. But he submitted to their torture. He submitted to their mock trial. He submitted to the abuse and the beating. He submitted to the cross. History is filled with men and women who have basked in their own power and authority. No matter how much power someone thinks they have, no matter matter how much control they think they have, Jesus is still greater. Amen? He's still greater. Jesus is the king of all kings. He holds the power that is greater than all power that can be demonstrated. You take the power of the atomic bomb, you, you distill it down to its smallest particle. Jesus is greater than that the greatest power of all power but history is filled with men and women who like to bask in their own glory and when I wrote that statement I was instantly reminded of King Nebuchadnezzar you remember King Nebuchadnezzar the book of Daniel he had some dreams that were confusing and Daniel a man of God comes in and says I'm going to give you interpretation of these dreams and long story short he tells the king you're going to be like an animal feeding on the ground eating grass for seven years and your nails are going to grow long like an eagle's nails and your hair is going to be long and you're going to be like a madman for seven years that was the judgment that God declared over Nebuchadnezzar and listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says he was a king of Babylon He, he reigned in Babylon from 605 to 536 B.C. But he lived seven years as a bad man at the word of the Lord. Daniel 4. At the end of the 12 months, this is before he gets struck as a madman. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's flexing. He's flexing his muscles. He's saying, it's my might, it's my power. I built this kingdom for my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Wow. Seven years he ate grass like an ox, like an oxen. Seven years a madman. Then afterwards God returns the king's mind, returns his sanity. And listen to the declaration of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of, of the earth, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Listen to this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, the one who was flexing my muscles and declaring that I was a mighty king, that I had built all the greatness of Babylon. I, Nebuchadnezzar, who thought that I was even greater than God. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. God's able to humble us when he needs to humble us. God's able to bring us low when we need to be brought low. God's able to bring us low and remind us that we're not God, that we're not king, just like Kanye. And I pray in Kanye's life that the true work of the gospel is taking place in his heart. I pray that this declaration of Jesus as king is coming from a heart of surrender. But no matter where, what, what place it's coming from, just like in Kanye's life, it's true in our life that if we set ourselves up higher than God and we don't submit to his ways, the Lord has a way of humbling us and getting our attention to remind us that he is in charge, that he is God, that he is king. He's the only one enthroned on, in, in majesty and glory and power. Jesus is king both now and forever. Let's end today like this. This is how I want us to end. Let's end today with a picture of the victorious Christ as he is described in Revelation 19. We're going to read, I'm going to read Revelation 19 and then we're going to end. When I'm, when I'm done reading, when I'm done reading, they're going to go into all hail King Jesus. And that's your cue to stand up, bow down, whatever you want to do, and Worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's read the word of the Lord today in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name that is written. What's his name? King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.